Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast from the new online magazine at AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show, Teasel Muir Harmony, curator of the Apollo spacecraft collection at the National Air and Space Museum, on her new book, Operation Moonglow, a political history of Project Apollo. Uh, Teasel, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on today. So congratulations on the new book. Um, it's, it's maybe an unusual place to start, perhaps, but it is very striking reading this book during the pandemic that, of course, a lot of it has to do with social distancing and social isolation. <laughs> Uh, you mean with traveling in outer space? Is that well? Yeah, I mean it's the. I mean, as, as NASA, you you quote NASA, a NASA spokesman saying of Michael Collins that you know as he orbits the far side of the moon, that not since Adam has any human known such solitude. Uh, I suppose Collins, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, they were in the ultimate bubble, really. I guess you could say that, and I. Um, but one of the things that it really strikes me about the story is the sense of unity that was brought about by space exploration. So although some of the individual astronauts uh, were very isolated during their missions, uh, and Mike Collins, who was orbiting the moon in the command module while his crewmates were down on the lunar surface, um, was very, very isolated, perhaps one of the most isolated people in history. Um, really what struck them uh, ultimately was this sort of sense of unity brought about by the moon landing, by all the people on Earth following the flight. Um, and it was even compared actually to a sense of unity that might be brought about by um, a pandemic or a natural disaster because it really brought people together. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's one of the things that really comes across, actually. I mean, you met uh, Collins and, and he pointed out to you that everywhere the astronauts went afterwards, it was we, we human beings, we did it, we did it, he says. That was the punchline everywhere that we went. Yeah, there's this great story uh, when the astronauts returned from the moon and um, for the first time they saw all the news coverage of their mission. And uh, Buzz Aldrin said to Neil Armstrong, uh, we missed the whole thing. It looks like there was a party here on Earth. Um, and I love that story because it really captures how important the experience on Earth was um, in terms of the significance of the moon landing. And so part of that significance comes from being on Earth, feeling unified, following the flight um, uh, in unison around the world, a sense of global community that um, arose because of the the moon landing and the experience of watching the moon landing together. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I, I am old enough uh, not to remember, but my father got me out of bed when I was still a baby uh, in order to watch uh, the moon landing uh, on the television. And, you know, as, as you point out, a fifth of the world's population watched the live TV feed uh, from the moon. There were hundreds of millions more listening on the radio. Uh, you say that half of humanity followed the flight. I mean, these are, this really was an extraordinary global event uh, in history. It was. And, and so often the history of the Apollo program, the moon landing is, is told as, you know, an, an, an American mission and a part of American history, but it really is part of global history um, and uh, understanding the connection between Apollo and world history is really, really important. I think is what I explore in my book, um, but it involved people on every single continent um, and, uh, you know, uh, coming together in unprecedented numbers. 
Yeah, it's it's it is one of the really interesting things you quote uh, Stephen Ambrose, the historian or biographer of Eisenhower and Nixon. Um, he quotes uh, Neil Armstrong or, or has a conversation with Neil Armstrong where he says to him that you know that famous quote about this, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind, uh, and Ambrose tells him that everybody in the world knows that line, and everybody in the world is. So so grateful you didn't say that's one giant leap forward for the United States. I, I think that's such an important comment and it really captures um, a lot of feelings that were expressed around the world um, of the, the, the way that the mission was framed as for all humankind and um, a lot of the effort that went into making um, a lot of the symbolism associated with the moon landing as um, inclusive as possible and and ensuring that people around the world would have access to information about the flight as well. I mean, they they seem to understand that themselves, didn't they? That I mean, the the story about the kind of the plaque being unveiled that says, "Here, men from planet Earth first set foot upon the moon." Again, they're not claiming it for the United States. They're not claiming it as Americans. It is almost as if everyone understood that this was something bigger than just national pride. I think there's this combination of, of both the understanding that it, this is bigger and that this is part of human history. This is, you know, the first time ever humans have traveled to another celestial body and set foot on it. I mean, that's that's significant. But there was also this other very, very important element that the U.S. government recognized how um, this universalist language and um, symbolism um, and sort of larger inclusive tone would advance U.S. foreign relations interests at the time. And so there was a lot of strategic intent that went into um, things like the plaque that was left on the moon and the decision to depict the earth, um, uh, both hemispheres of the earth with no political boundaries. And that was really intentional. And that part of um, the motivation to do that was to to signal that this was for all humankind, that the United States was sort of inviting the world to participate in this endeavor. Um, so it was it was both things going along um, at once. Yeah, and it's it's one of the major themes running through the book, uh, what today we would describe as soft power. Yes, exactly. And and that motivated President Kennedy from the very start to propose Project Apollo. It was his uh, tied to his understanding of what was necessary at that particular moment um, in terms of the U.S.'s um, role in the world and um, the threat to prestige from um, the Soviet Union sending Yuri Gagarin into space, the first human spaceflight, and then also followed very quickly after by the Bay of Pigs. Um, but the idea that uh, spaceflight and the Apollo program would be important to U.S. soft power was also taken up by by Johnson and by Nixon and, and earlier by Eisenhower as well. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of the things that you describe really well that we we associate President Kennedy so closely with it with this Moon project. But I mean, as as you show, he really wasn't much interested in it. But he did seem to grasp that somehow this would help people. It would affect their imaginations as they weighed up those competing systems of Soviet communism versus Western democracy. He was really attuned to the, the the power of prestige and politics and image, and um, 
also the importance of newly independent nations within the larger world order. And he thought that spaceflight was going to be really critical to the U.S.'s position um, at that moment. And he resisted it at first because he was not he was not a space enthusiast coming in to the presidency. But and he he actually even um, wanted to know if there were other types of big demonstrations and and science and uh, technology that the U.S. could pursue instead. And he was interested in something maybe a little bit more um, with more practical applications. So he pushed for something like the desalination of, of water. He thought maybe that that could do it. But um, it became clear that at this moment in time, it was going to be space exploration. Um, and so um, so he pursued it, but largely for its um, potential impact on um, U.S. standing. And I guess, I mean, there is a there's a pragmatism uh, involved in this, isn't it? That, you know, you have to you have to fight on the field of play that the Soviets had stolen a march in this area with Sputnik by putting the first man in uh, first man in space that I mean, how did the Soviets get ahead? And, and why did it worry the Americans so much? It was it was very, very close all along. I should emphasize that. Um, and uh in the 1950s, both the Soviet Union and the United States were um, pursuing space exploration, first through satellites and then eventually human um, space exploration. And um, the both had announced space programs and the, the intention to launch satellites as part of the International Geophysical Year, this, this sort of global cooperative effort to study the Earth. Um, and... Uh, the Soviet Union and the United States both recognized that there would be propaganda potential. Part of the reason that that Sputnik, um, the first satellites the Soviet Union sent up in October of 57, had such a, a massive blow and and repercussions to this day, I and mean, when we still talk about a Sputnik moment, um, was not only because it was a very impressive technological feat, which it was, but also because it came at a moment um, when it factored into domestic U.S. Um, competition uh, between um, Democrats and Republicans, and um, especially led by LBJ to really use it as sort of a wedge um, uh, in the next election to get more Democrats elected. And then after that, um, the, the next presidential election, he saw that as part of a strategy. And so LBJ and others amplify the sense of urgency and and use the Sputnik as a way to talk about and critique um, the the Eisenhower administration's approach to um, national security. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, the, it's staggering, really, the amounts of money that are involved. I mean, you uh, say that this is the equivalent of nearly $300 billion, uh, today. Uh, it's more than 18 times what the country spent on the Panama Canal, five times the expense of the Manhattan Project. I mean, we are talking seriously big money here. The scale is extraordinary, um, and by the mid-1960s, over 4% of the federal budget went to the Apollo program, and um, hundreds of thousands of people around the country. By the mid-1960s, also, it was um, over 400,000 people working on this this project, um, and that was because it was seen as a national priority, um, which um, was the only way that, that Kennedy thought it justified the expense. 
I mean, one of the things that is really interesting and, and still intrigues me is that, as you say, this was kind of very much seen as a kind of projection of Western, of American values, that uh, the importance of soft power and so on. Uh, and yet Neil Armstrong, the man who is going to be seen by all these people around the world, basically decides what he's going to say for himself when he steps out uh, onto the moon. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it, that, uh, that he wrote those words himself and that no one knew what he was actually going to say. It is it is on one hand, but then if you look at the, the history of the promotion of the U.S. space program um, in the 1960s, it actually fits in line with this larger strategy, which was, you know, the, we're investing in spaceflight um, to to win the hearts and minds of the world public, as, as Kennedy put it, and to demonstrate the values of the United States. And that included um, openness and a freedom and freedom of expression. And so um, the astronauts were encouraged to um, to say, you know, to speak for themselves and, and um, uh, to be able to compose their own messages, whether it was during the Apollo 8 mission, which is the first mission to orbit um, the moon and uh, the astronauts were said, you know, half, you know, a huge portion of the world is going to be watching your flight, you know, say something um, that's, you know, appropriate. And that's the only instruction that they got. Um, and um, they ended up reading from Genesis. But um, it was similar with Apollo 11. And so this was this was part of this larger strategy. And it was in direct opposition to the Soviet Union's approach where, you um, the, the astronauts were, or the cosmonauts, what they said was more scripted. Um, Yuri Gagarin, his first statement about his his flight, so he was the first human in space. He was it was actually written by someone else, and he memorized it. Um, and so, uh, what the United States was trying to do through things like um, the, what the astronauts' remarks, both on their missions and then also on their diplomatic tours and in events, was to demonstrate um, that value. Yeah, and and then it really paid off. I mean, he could have had one of the great speechwriters like Theodore Sorensen or someone uh, crafting something for it, but I mean, it was just perfect for the moment, wasn't it? And it must be simply one of the most famous quotations in all human history. And I think we're lucky that that Armstrong was so thoughtful and um, put a lot of effort into that moment because it, it captures, I think, um, the mission so well and the intentions of the mission. Um, and it, and it, I think it did allow the sense of um, uh, participation or inclusion or um, this the sense that it wasn't just about his accomplishment or um, NASA's accomplishment or the United States but it really was something much, much larger than that. Now, the, the story of the moon landing itself is quite well known, but what's really original uh, in your book is is what you have to say about what comes afterwards. And uh, in, in particular, uh, what I found fascinating was uh, this trip that uh, Nixon uh, organised and where you get the, the name of the book from, Operation Moonglow. T- tell us about that. So... Um President Nixon, when he came into office, he was very interested in um, in, in changing um, U.S. foreign policy, and he wanted to improve U.S. Um, relations with China and and um, and change um, U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. And he saw the popularity of the moon landing as a great opportunity to to advance these foreign relations initiatives. And so he ended up 
meeting the astronauts when they splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, returning from their flight. And then he embarked on what was codenamed Operation Moonglow. So this is a diplomatic tour of Southeast Asia. And then it also included Romania and um, and England. And um, this is where he first introduced the Nixon Doctrine, actually the same day that he met the astronauts at Splashdown. And then um, it, he saw this also as an opportunity to um, meet with Romanian uh, leader Ceausescu to, um, to start opening up communication channels uh, with North Vietnam and China. Yeah, and and you rec- uh, recount how Nixon later told Armstrong that the moon landing got him his meeting with Ceausescu, which in turn helped with the opening, uh, the opening t- uh, with China. And as as you point out, it, it's whether that's true or not. The comment reveals those elements in in how Nixon himself saw Project Apollo and spaceflight more generally. I think it really does, and of of course, this one meeting isn't worth you know the what today would be hundreds of billions of dollars, um, or it it likely wasn't because it took much more than that one meeting um, uh, to advance his his uh, new initiatives. But um, Nixon and LBJ and Kennedy and Eisenhower they all really understood the potential impact of spaceflight and and space diplomacy on the U.S. standing abroad, and then also as a way to to advance other types of interests. So it really ranged from um, activities like Operation Moonglow, this diplomatic tour, to just uh, recognizing that newspaper coverage of the moon landing or space shots would displace coverage of things like the Vietnam War, which um, that was seen even as as positive to um, the U.S.'s position abroad. And of course, the astronauts themselves went on their own world tour, um, as uh, viewers of The Crown uh, on Netflix will know, um, 29 cities in 22 countries. And the reaction to them is phenomenal, isn't it? It's an incredible story, and I was so glad to be able to cover it in more detail in the book. But the the, the response, there was a lot of enthusiasm, but it should be noted that they, um, when they were deciding which tour locations to choose, they wanted to ensure that they stopped in cities where they knew the astronauts would be received warmly because they didn't want any negative press, so protests and things like that showing up um, in newspaper coverage around the world. But yeah, the astronauts traveled the world and they heard this message that, you know, we did it the sense that um, all, all humankind traveled to the moon together. So this was seen as a, as a very successful tour, um, as was uh, Nixon's Operation Moonglow tour. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that's really interesting about all of this, that uh, it, it does speak to an ability to deliver massive infrastructure uh, projects and imaginative projects of, of this kind that, you know, I'm thinking that that generation built a massive interstate highway system to travel the country. Uh, in the 50s, they built a rocket to travel to the moon in the in the 60s. What, what do you think it is about that generation that, that they're able to do that? And why do you think it is that it, it seems to be much more difficult to deliver that kind of uh, project today? Well, a big part of the infrastructure that was um, built up or invested in for uh, the moon landing wasn't just about building the Saturn V rocket or the command module or the lunar module or um, mission control. It also involved 
context, this this global communications network and infrastructure, this um, global public diplomacy campaign to promote spaceflight throughout the 1960s. And so um, it was essential that the United States invested in um, satellite communications, um, these this net global network of tracking and communication stations around the world so that people could watch live television coverage. And then also the U.S. Information Agency and the State Department's um, incredible efforts to promote this space program abroad. So the, things like uh, press packets and exhibits and um, astronaut tours and handing out souvenirs like buttons and things like that, getting people excited and interested and making them aware of um, the space program and then taking advantage of of that enthusiasm. So it was the buildup both when it comes to, uh, you know, the hardware and software uh, at NASA, but then also this larger communications infrastructure, which which really made Apollo um, and the moon landing what it was in terms of its its larger um, global impact. To speak to your, your question about what's, you know, part of what's different um, in the 1960s than today is that um, in the 1960s, uh, there was this the sense that international public opinion really mattered and um, the national security and national standing of the United States um, uh, was really tied to um, its role within the world. So both winning hearts and minds um, and then uh, and then also um, sort of acting as a model of, of values that, that other nations would um would find appealing, you know, this, this sense of soft power. So the investment and um, priority of soft power at that time, I think, was also a big part of the difference um, that we see um, between the 1960s and today. And it is interesting, too, how that sense of exploration, of shared venture, shared humanity and, and so on, does seem to be something that has a kind of a big impact in the way that, say, something like the Strategic Defence Initiative and the idea of having a shield in space to protect against nuclear weapons, but also the fear that this may be something which is uh, could also be used in an offensive fashion um, does not do. So, uh, as I say, uh, the sense of wonder, exploration, it seems to be what pulls it all together. The the message that this was was peaceful and scientific was, was seen as really important from the very start and it um, contributed to the selection of the type of satellite the United States has decided to, to send in space first. It didn't um, quite work out as expected, but um, a lot of the, the early decision-making with the U.S. space program involved this question of demonstrating peaceful intentions and the importance of science and scientific exploration in, in that messaging. So the idea that um, space flight for the advancement of science um, would be interpreted as more peaceful. And so the U.S. even decided to um, establish both a civilian and a military space program separately, um, unlike the Soviet Union, in part because a civilian space program that was separated from a military space program could be more open when it came to um, sharing information about hardware and missions and launches and things like that. And so 
um, it was all sort of um, tied together. And it does it does still seem to tap into the public imagination. I mean, there's the private ventures like SpaceX, for example, um, that talk about uh, space travel in the future. You know, I, I do wonder, do, do, you, do you see a future where space travel might be like taking a Ryanair or Southwest flight that will we see low cost carriers to the moon uh, shortly, do you think? I think I could answer the question uh, when you add shortly there, I could answer it more easily, <laughs> which is uh, I don't think it'll happen shortly. Um, there, There is enthusiasm. One sort of one important characteristic of spaceflight is that for, for many, many years, there has been an important um, sort of um, enthusiasm about spaceflight tied to science fiction and the sort of imagination of the future and what's possible in other worlds. And, um, and this was important in the 1950s, especially in sort of, uh, creating, um, a larger context where people were thinking about space and excited about space and its possibilities for the future. And I think, um, that still holds true today. Um, the large scale expensive space programs usually require, um, sort of a national objective, as we haven't yet seen an example where something like um, uh, private industry can really fully support um, exploration as much as things like um, you know communication satellites and and um, space in low Earth orbit. Um, so when it comes to traveling to the moon, for instance, out of either exploration or um, just uh, tourism or something like that. It's extraordinarily expensive and risky and um, would require a huge investment. And I think that it seems unlikely in the near term um, to be anything that's regular, um, but it might be possible in, in the far future. Right now, there's really important developments when it comes to the reusability of um, of rockets and uh, and that's going to lower the cost and that lowers then the threshold to you know who can travel in space which um, so we're seeing a shift right now but it's just it'll take a little while I think. I wonder about the environmental aspects of this as well. It very much concerns that we have now that perhaps they didn't have so much in the in the 1960s. I mean, what kind of damage does space travel do to the world and its atmosphere and 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 space too? There it is. There is the, the issue of of pollution uh, with rocket fuel, um, similar to uh, you know taking airplanes places. But when it when it comes to um, climate change, there are other factors that are much more significant. Um, our food choices, for instance, have a, a bigger impact than um, the rockets going up into space. And I suppose as well, recently, uh, the, the idea of space travel has kind of come back to the forefront. I, I noticed that uh, Vice President Mike Pence intr introduced a group of 18 astronauts last week um, as part of the Artemis program and the new NASA Astronauts Corps. Um, I mean, that's part of a $28 billion plan to send the first woman to the moon by uh, 2024. What, what do you make of that? Um, it's it's a very bold objective. Um, I I think it's important to to recognize that this is this is not the first time that uh, a president proposed sending humans back to the moon since the Kennedy administration. So this this was also proposed um, by both of the the Bush 
presidencies. Um, so one of the one of the reasons why um, it wasn't achieved again, either during either of those presidencies, was because something like sending humans to the moon is is really expensive and it takes a long time. And sometimes, or that type of initiative would would usually span more than one presidential administration. And um, each presidential administration tends to want to set its own goals in space. Um, so we don't yet know what's going to happen with this next um, presidential administration, but the the likelihood that that um, the at least the timeline will change, um, I think, is quite quite high. So so we'll see um, what happens. Uh, but but like previous uh, proposals to send humans to the moon in the past. I think there's, um, it's so contingent on, on the length of presidential administrations. Yeah. And, and finally, Teasel, I mean, it's been a very hard year for museums, uh, obviously yours, the, the National Air and Space Museum is one of the better funded by uh, the Smithsonian and private donors like Steve Harsey. But even so, what kind of impact do you think that the pandemic is, is going to have on kind of the educational aspects, the museum aspects around uh, questions like space and flight? That's a, that's a hard question. Um, I, I think, so before, before the, um, the pandemic, I, I thought that, you know, virtual, virtual experiences, um, when you think about robotic space exploration, so sending, sending rovers to Mars and things like that, that, that um, today that could be much more satisfying to people than it might have been in the 1960s or in the early 1960s when they were trying to discuss what type of program to pursue. Um, NASA Administrator James Webb um, said that it was it was humans and not machines that that were going to inspire people and and um, inspire people's imagination around the world. So that's part of you know why we send humans to the moon as opposed to 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 robots in in the 1960s or in addition to robots in the 1960s um and i had thought that today you know perhaps with our experience of of uh, virtual reality and, and virtual spaces that 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 um would no longer be true but it seems that um many people i speak to are missing the in-person experiences and having human presence is is perhaps even more important than than I had realized. And I think, you know, when museums open up again, I think people want to go see these things in person, see the artifacts in person, have that personal connection. And then perhaps also with space exploration, the the importance of having humans travel to these new places um, or have these new experiences will will be um, heightened. I'm not quite sure. We'll, we'll see. I think um, it's unclear how the pandemic's going to impact society and in all these different dimensions but um that's one of one of the ways i've been thinking about how it might impact spaceflight so the book is Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Project Apollo. It's written by my guest, Teasel Muir Harmony, and published by Basic Books. But for now, Teasel, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So that's it from us for 2020. We'll be back in January. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, producer Damien Rusick, and everyone at American Purpose wishing you a happy and safe holiday and all the very best for the new year. 